All right, so PG-13, are y'all ready? Some of you are like, uh, I don't know, me too, actually. Uh, my name is Fred. I am the lead pastor here. And if I didn't get a chance to meet you, uh, I hope to meet you uh, on the way out. But, but I have a question uh, to ask you first, and it's this. Do you ever get bored? Like, do, you ever, do you ever get bored? I remember when I was a kid, summer times were always like too long for me. I would get bored about halfway through. And I remember one time I looked at my mom, and I was like, Mom, I'm bored. And she goes, well, you can read a book. It's like, Mom, I'm bored already. What would, why would I want a book? Like, like boredom is common. What we're going to see in just a minute is more than common. It's probably lingering on epidemic. Here's what the definition of boredom is, just to bore you. It says this. It says, research states boredom occurs when there is a lack of excitement, a condition of dissatisfaction, disinterest, or frustration, all leading to a lack of stimulation. So essentially, boredom is a lack of stimulation. And this is what the research says, but let me tell you what boredom feels like. Boredom feels numb. And I know some of you, well, listen to this. Psychology Today, this was great. Psychology Today did a study on boredom. And what they found is that 90% of adults, up to 90% of adults, say that there's a point in their day where they experience boredom every day. When they did that same study with students, that number went up to 98%. Right? Sorry, all you teachers out there. But 98% of students say that they feel bored sometime in their day. Now, that wasn't just a them and us, because sometimes in the church we think, well, that's their problem, not our problem. But Barna did a research on the millennial generation about why they're leaving church. One third of the millennial generation said the reason they're leaving church is because, guess what? They're bored in church. Pornography, one of the main reasons, not the main reason, but one of like the top reasons that people say they engage with pornography is because they're bored and they feel numb. Now, in any other condition, if I were to quote those statistics to you that 90% of adults experience it, 98% of students experience it, it's, one th- it's the reason that one-third of this generation leaves the church, and it's a driving force for pornography, which is, 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 it has all kinds of bad effects on our country, on the culture, on, on people individually. If I were to say that with anything else, you would call it an epidemic. As a culture, we are just bored. So let me ask you again, what about you? How often do you get bored? And do you ever feel numb? Now, I know some of you would say, Fred, this isn't every day. I mean, this doesn't happen once a day. This is every day for me. I kind of feel numb all the time. I'm just bored. I'm bored in life, I'm bored at my job, I'm bored in my marriage, I'm just bored. Well, today we're going to see a solution to boredom. And we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you, and it's on page 831 in that Bible, or you can download the Bible app, and we're in there under events. Click on Fellowship Asheville. All of our announcements are there, and the text for today is there, then questions to consider is there. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that we are in a series called Can I Say That? 
And what we're doing in this series is we're taking these thoughts that, that uh, bounce around in my head uh, so much that I assume that they're bouncing around in your head some too. And we're covering topics that really uh, I've been wanting to cover for a few years, but honestly, I haven't had the nerve to do them. And I decided let's just rip the Band-Aid off and do all of them in one swoop. And so we're talking, we talked about politics. We've talked about money. Uh, today, we're talking about sex. Um, next week, we're talking about singleness. And if you're married, you still need to be here, right? Because this isn't a bye week for you. Like, you still need to be here for it because it'll impact you as well. We're talking about homosexuality. We're talking about women in church leadership. Um, and then I forget the last one. But it'll be good. All right, and, and, then, and then Caleb's gonna come up and we're doing a student takeover Sunday and he's gonna talk about uh, youth in leadership and what that looks like in the church, which will be really fun. But what we're doing in this Can I Say That series is with each of those topics, we're taking a thought that bounces around in our head and we're running that thought through the lens of scripture. And what happens when we take that thought and run it through the lens of scripture, we discover the Bible has something to say about those thoughts that bounce around on our head. And oftentimes, what the Bible has to say goes against what we naturally think and sometimes goes against the culture so much so that it produces this scandalous statement. And that's what we see in this series is a scandalous statement that's biblically true. And what I've seen in some of your reactions to some of these is that those statements are sometimes so scandalous, you do think, can I really say that? Yes. Yes, you can. And today, we're going to see what happens when we get bored. But our scandalous statement isn't about boredom. Our scandalous statement is about pleasure. And we're going to be talking about sex, and we're going to be talking about food, but we're going to start off in a really safe area like boredom, and then move into sex and food. Because can I tell you what, what I think we think when we get bored? At least it's what I thought during the summer. It's what I thought a lot as a kid. It's what I thought, what I think sometimes even in as an adult. And this is the thought that we're gonna evaluate through God's word is this, that when I'm bored, I want more. Right, that the reason I'm bored is because I'm dissatisfied with what I have and I want different, I want better, I want more. When I was a kid and I said I was bored, y'all, I had a closet full of toys, that was so full, sometimes I would pull all the toys out of the closet just to discover what was in the back that I hadn't played with in a few months. And it was like Christmas, right? I had a bookshelf full of books, which I've already talked about. And I had an Atari that had five whole games on it. Asteroids. Thank you. Yes. Yes, Exactly. But I looked at the vast wealth of stuff that I had as a kid, and I would still look at my mom and say, I'm bored, because what I had wasn't enough. I wanted more, I wanted different, I wanted better. And what if God's solution to boredom isn't about something more, and it's not about something different, and it's not about something better? What if God's solution to our boredom is this? What if God's solution is that we take pleasure in what God gives the way he gives it? We take pleasure in what God gives the way he gives it. What if, what if us doing that changes our boredom into something else? 
And you see this idea of wanting more and wanting different and wanting better? This isn't just something in our culture. Even though our culture is known for it, right? If you want something more different and better, all you have to do is pull out your phone, go to Amazon, and it'll be delivered in your house within two days. Or if you live in a big city, it could be delivered to your house that day. Or if it's light enough and you live in a big enough city, they could bring it to you by drone in a couple of hours. Right, that's what we're known for. But this isn't a recent issue. Back in the ancient church, when the church was just getting started, there was this young pastor named Timothy And Paul was his mentor, and Paul went around planting churches, and Paul started this church, and and Timothy came, and and, and Timothy was pastoring it, and Timothy was dealing with this problem in his culture too, that people were getting bored. And and, and what was interesting is they weren't just getting bored, there was this group of people, and, and, and Paul's gonna call them false teachers, and they were in the church or right outside the church, but they were influencing the people in the church, and they made, they made boredom something noble. They made boredom something holy. And what they did is they took the pleasure out of faith. And, 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 and part of me gets it. Like if, if you're a person outside the church and, and you see God as a God who is distant and a God who is righteous and a God who is over there and we're over here and, and he's doing his plan and we're doing our plan, that kind of view of God, it makes sense that he wouldn't give pleasure, that, he, that pleasure is something that that God is too clean for, that God is, is too sanitary for. But our God is different. And this is what Paul is gonna show Timothy in how to deal with these false teachers. Look at, look at verse one. So 1 Timothy chapter four, verse one says this. It says, now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness has been seared. So what Paul is telling Timothy in, in dealing with these false teachers and dealing with these people that have made faith that's something boring, they've made, they've made boring something that's holy, he's telling them, listen, God has said this is gonna happen. Right, so what you're experiencing is exactly what pastors experience where, where, where people bring these ideas into the church and these ideas in the church go against what God has said, that God has called something good and these teachers are calling it bad or God has called something bad and these teachers are calling it good. That's part of what church is and he's telling Timothy that's part of your job is to sort those two things out. And to, and to raise up a congregation that calls good what God calls good and calls bad what God calls bad. That's part of your job, Timothy. And he also adds this little interesting tidbit in this verse that that teaching that you're hearing, that teaching that people are whispering in the congregation is kind of making its way in, that teaching has a source and it's not just their mind that this teaching actually has a demonic source. Because what Satan loves to do is to call bad what God calls good and to call good what God calls bad. And when that happens, Timothy, you've got to deal with it. Look at verse three. And let's look at what these guys were calling bad. It says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. 
And so these, these false teachers were calling a couple of things bad. One of them was marriage. Right? They weren't calling most likely just marriage bad because when you look at Scripture, you see that marriage and sex go hand in hand. Because when God created Adam and, and he was working in the garden and things were good and he realized that, that Adam was all alone and he wanted to fix that and, and he wanted to give Adam a helpmate to, to, to work alongside of him, he brought Eve. And, and in that moment, we see the first marriage. And it says that, that God did not just create marriage. He created a man and a woman to be married and to become one. And it says, the scriptures say they became one in flesh and they became one. And so it wasn't, um, it wasn't just about them being married, about becoming one. It was about becoming one in flesh. And what the, what the picture in Hebrew is, is literally a man and a woman fitting together, physically, literally becoming one. And so from the very beginning, Two things happened with marriage. One, that marriage was between a man and a woman. And two, that when they got married, sex was a part of their relationship. And it wasn't there before. And God called this good. The fact that marriage and sex go hand in hand. And God looked at it and called it good. So much so that you have an entire book of your Bible dedicated to romantic, passionate, sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And it's called Song of Solomon. And when you follow that book to the honeymoon part of that book, you hear the voice of God speak over this brand new husband and wife and he tells them, drink, O lovers, and drink to your fill. In other words, he looks at this couple that was just married and doesn't just tell them to have sex because you're supposed to. He says, you have all the sex you want now that you're married. It is part of your relationship. And no other relationship that you have will it be this. But God told them to drink, O lovers, and drink to their fill. And here we see that God calls sex inside of marriage good. You see, in the Bible, marriage and sex go hand in hand. And so when these guys, these false teachers, were saying no to marriage, they were saying no to sex inside of marriage. They weren't just saying no to the institution of marriage. They were saying no to what happens in marriage. And they were taking what God calls good and they were calling it bad. And what's interesting, in our culture, we do just the opposite, right? We don't, we don't tell people to not get married, to abstain from sex. We tell them, listen, actually, what God calls bad, we're gonna call good. And sex outside of marriage, that's fine. That's what our culture says, right? I've heard somebody say, you gotta make sure the plumbing works. Well, it usually does. There's actually a very small percentage of 1% where it doesn't. The other 99.6% it does. It works. But our culture calls sex before marriage good. They call living together as husband and wife before your husband and wife good and fine. But God calls this Bad. What God calls good is marriage and sex within marriage. When I was working with college students, one of the, the, the pastors at our church gave me the design sex to be part of your marriage. It is like this fire in your house. And a fire in your house has one place, and that's the fireplace. 
If you put a fire in the living room, guess what? It's gonna burn down the house. And so sex is designed to be in marriage between one man and one woman. That's the way God intended it. But this is only one of the things that this, these teachers were calling bad, these false teachers. There's also this matter of food, and these people were telling followers that, listen, there are certain foods that you can't have. And you know why they were saying you can't have some of these foods? Because some of these foods are really good. And they, like, make you feel things. They make you feel pleasure, right? All my chocolate people, can I get an amen? Right? You put a piece of chocolate in your mouth, it's good. And these teachers were saying, certainly that can't be from God. Because God doesn't want you to feel that way. And so they were taking that food and they were taking sex. And what's interesting, food and sex are connected. They, they, they activate the same part of the brain, the limbic part of the brain that produces dopamine. And so, so those two things, because they're connected to pleasure, they, do, they, they are tied together. And so it makes sense that they were tying them together. Because both of these produce pleasure. And so these false teachers, they, they said that pleasure is bad, is what they said. Pleasure seen in marriage, pleasure seen in certain foods, that is bad and you need to stay away from it. But look, because Paul has different words for Timothy to teach to a church because God thinks differently on this matter than those teachers. Look at what God thinks about sex and marriage and, and food in verse three. It says this, and who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God, what does your Bible say? That God created. And so if you're Timothy reading this letter to the church or, or, or you're Timothy reading this letter from Paul for the first time, you're like, whoa, 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 what? God created? Yeah, I understand God created marriage. God created these foods. God created God created what, these, what sex and what marriage does. So see, what Paul is saying to this young pastor to relay to his people here is that sex is not a byproduct of marriage, right? Sex isn't something that, that we humans just evolved into and, and stumbled into, that good food, good food that, that, that does something to that part of your brain, that, that that's just not something that, that, that we stumbled into. It was something that God created. And y'all, this is our scandalous statement today. And I know it's not gonna seem scandalous when you see it, but as we dive deeper, I think we'll see just how scandalous it is. And it's this, that, that God created pleasure. Like, let that sink in for just a minute, that, that our God that we worship to and sing to and sing old hymns and current songs to, the God that we pray to, that God created pleasure. And he created us to be able to enjoy the pleasure, the way that he gives and what he gives. You see, God created marriage and he created sex and he created food to be enjoyed. Y'all, he created pleasure. If, if you think God is mean, grab a peanut M&M. Right? There's something magical about chocolate and peanut coated in sugar together. 
maybe even miraculous. Right? You think God is uncaring? Go have sex with your spouse. Notice I said sex with your spouse. I didn't say go have sex. I don't want to hear Fred said. Fred said go have sex with your spouse is what Fred said. Did y'all know? Okay, how many of you think that we've hit PG-13 already? You're about to. All right. If you haven't yet, we're about to. Because did y'all know that there is a part of a woman's body that God created just for pleasure. It serves no other function other than pleasure. Right, this is where it's about to get really awkward. I was gonna call this sermon the theology of the clitoris, but some people on staff said that kind of makes them squirm a little bit, and I said, listen, I had to teach through Genesis and I said circumcision 500 times and every guy squirmed when I said it. I'm like, it's your turn. But you realize that part of the human anatomy is only for pleasure. It serves no other function. And our God created that. See, our God created pleasure. And so how does this help when you're bored? Is the application to go have sex with your spouse? Maybe. But see, when we realize that God created pleasure for us to enjoy the, the way that he gives it and to enjoy what pleasure he gives, here's what happens. Look at the, at the rest of verse three. It says, it says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You see, our boredom can turn to pleasure when we acknowledge what God has given and we acknowledge the way that he has given it. When we take pleasure in what God gives and the way he gives it, what that does is it turns boredom into thankfulness. When you start giving thanks, you stop being bored. When you start giving thanks for what you have that from God that he has given you, and the way he has given it to you, you realize you don't need better, you don't need different, you don't need more. You give thanks for what he has. And so are you bored today? Are you numb? And take a moment and look around and give thanks for what you have. Take pleasure in what God has given you. Seriously, that peanut M&M that I talked about, that y'all connected with me on, right? I was writing this sermon, and I got bored. It happens sometimes when I write, and my mind kind of gets distracted. And, and, and uh, in my desk drawer, it was a little bag of peanut M&Ms. And when I say little, I mean, you know, that big. <laughs> I saw them at Aldi, and it said shareable size. I was like, aren't they cute? That's <laughs> They think people share these. Um, uh, I had them on my desk drawer, and so I reached them out and put a few on my desk because they're kind of my go-to snack. Do y'all have go-to snacks when you're bored? Like, notice how it's never a salad is your go-to snack. It's like chips and chocolate and all this stuff. Well, anyway, I had those peanut M&Ms sitting on my desk, and I was munching on a couple of And I stopped, and I was like, wait a second. Okay, I'm writing about being bored, and I'm bored. I'm writing about stopping and receiving what God has given. And so I took one peanut M&M, and I said, okay, I'm gonna... 
receive this as if it is a gift from the Lord because God provided the money for me to buy it. He provided the office for me to sit in, the desk to keep them nice and dry and waiting for me. And so I put one in my mouth and y'all, it was good. It was really good. Like so good. Like I forgot how good peanut M&Ms are. Right? And, and, and I enjoyed that peanut m M&M. And I gave thanks for that peanut m M&M. You see, so what do you do when you get bored? I'm gonna give you a pattern that is seen in scripture. And it's this, is that you stop. Because if you're bored and you want more and you want different and you want better, you've gotta stop. And you've got to readjust. So you stop and you look around. You receive what God has given you. He's given you feet to walk, so take a walk and enjoy the coolness of fall. Finally, some of you call it winter, but it's just fall. The leaves that are changing color, like enjoy that God has given you. Take pleasure in what God has created, that he's given you the leaves to see. He's, he's, he's given you the spouse to have sex with. He's given you the food to eat. And then give thanks. So stop, receive, take, and give thanks. And this doesn't just work for food. In the book of Proverbs, it says uh, this about sex and marriage, and it follows the same thing. The the writer of Proverbs, uh, Solomon, is saying, let your fountain, this is uh, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, let your fountain be blessed, okay? And what what that means is the, 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 the Solomon, he's calling attention. He's telling the person to stop, and guess what? To notice their sexual organs is what he's saying. That's the fountain that he's talking about to be blessed. All right, have we hit PG-13 yet? He's saying, saying, let your fountain be blessed. So stop and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now this is Solomon talking to an older couple. They're not on their honeymoon. Their honeymoon was a long time ago. Right, and, and when they got married, it was similar to when we get married always. And, and, and when couples are getting ready for their wedding, I say that they're on their LGN diet, their look good naked diet. And so that's, that's what they're trying to do because they know uh, from that day on, they'll probably never look that good again. Right, and this Solomon is writing to this couple and he, he's telling them to rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so he's telling them this is about sex and it's about those who are married. And he says, a lovely deer and a graceful doe receive what God has given. Stop, look around and receive what God has given and let her breast fill you all times with delight. Take pleasure in what God has created and be intoxicated with her, always in her love. And this idea of always is to always give thanks, always be intoxicated in her love. And look what else is true that that Paul wants Timothy to communicate to his church and and through him to us. Look at at the rest of of verse three. It says, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so what Timothy is saying to his congregation, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, listen, what this is, the rest of the world may never understand it. 
And how we receive this pleasure and give thanks to it will be different than the way the world does. I was, I was doing research uh, for this sermon and came across uh, a comedian who's a non-Christian comedian. And he said this. He said, uh, pizza is kind of like sex. When it's bad, it's still pretty good. See, y'all are a little bit more awake than the first service. They'll get it later. But what this non-Christian person was acknowledging is that both food and sex give pleasure, right? Both food and sex give a certain amount of pleasure. But what Paul is saying, and that's called God's common grace. He's not gonna reserve pleasure just for the church. The world gets to experience pleasure. But because we are his and because we have a relationship with him, what we do with that pleasure and how we see that pleasure is vastly different than the way the world sees it. We see something different behind pizza and sex than they see. And Paul's gonna tell us what that is. See, we, the church, have a much higher calling because we take pleasure in what God gives, the way he gives it. And listen, I know some of you, when I speak to a group about sex and I speak to a group about pleasure, which doesn't happen often, but when I do, I know that there are people that hear me and there are people that are in this group that have experienced the bad side of pleasure where you have been a victim of somebody using you for their own pleasure. Or you have been the one who has used pleasure at the cost of another. Even with pornography, that you've done that. Sex outside of marriage. Listen, I worked in college ministry for years and I heard all kinds of definitions of what sex is and what sex isn't. Right, when uh, my wife and I were doing college ministry, you know, the whole Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing, and Bill Clinton came out and said, we just had oral sex, that's not sex. I turned to my wife and I said, that's gonna create a division. From now on, everything is gonna be called not sex except sexual intercourse. And the problem is, your body is designed to tell you when you're about to have sex. One of my seminary professors, as he was raising his teenagers, he said, he said I give them the, the, the law of the three nothings to help, keep them, to help them remain pure. That nothing comes off, nothing below the neck, and nothing lying down. If you can keep those three nothings in line, you'll do great. When I was working with college students, I took it one step further because, y'all, this is so gross. In Scripture, <clears throat> In scripture, when when a man and a woman have a relationship together, there are two categories for that. One of them is husband and wife. And that's where God has designed sex to be a part of that relationship and to be enjoyed fully in that relationship. The other relationship that scripture calls that a man and a woman have between themselves is brother and sister. And so whenever a college student came to me and said, how far is too far? I would tell them that and I would say, so do to your girlfriend whatever you would do to your sister and you'll be fine. Isn't that gross? (laughs) But it gets the point across, right? And some of you have overstepped that bound. And like I said, and some of you have had that boundary overstepped against your will. And you have been a victim. And here's what I want you to know. That God weeps with you. 
That is not what he intended. And that our God calls that bad. And he will fight for you. Eventually, your abuser will face justice. Whether it's before men or before God, he will face justice for what he has done. And y'all, I want, I'm going to tell you something that happened in first service. Because it just shows the character of our God. I made a joke about this in first service. And people laughed, and it was funny. Sometimes I like to do that. I like to relieve tension with humor. And on a scale of one to 10, honestly, it wasn't that big of a deal. But during, after the sermon, I went over here, and it was during the last song of worship about being a good, good father. That's what we're gonna sing after this. And I was sitting there, and God brought to my mind a client, a counseling client that I had back in Tennessee whose brother had abused her. And, and he reminded me that I was the only one who believed her then. Her parents didn't believe her. Her brother was like this golden child and certainly he wouldn't do anything like this. But you can just tell when you're talking to a victim. And I met with the parents and said, listen, I believe this has happened and they didn't. And I was the only one who believed her. And he, he just put this thought in my head about what, what would she feel like if she sat there and, and heard people laugh? And y'all, that's our God. He fought for the victim when she wasn't even in the room. That's our God. And he weeps with victims. And he brings abusers to justice. And listen, if you are an abuser, if you're a person that even from a distance, like pornography is still abuse, those women and those men, they would choose a different life. If you're the abuser, you need the same place of healing that the victim does, and that is at the foot of the cross. Because there is forgiveness for the abuser and there is healing for the victim at the foot of the cross. Because our Jesus died so that you could have this relationship with God where your sins are forgiven, they don't hold power over you anymore, and you can be free. And listen, if you're an abuser, that healing is there for you. Because here's what I've seen time and time again. You know the right answers. You know that you did nothing to deserve it. But yet there's always this part in your soul that says, what if I did? Jesus meets you in that part of your soul. And he will heal you in a way that nothing else can. You see, that's how the church deals with pleasure. That's how the church deals with doing what God calls good when, when other people call it bad. There is healing and there is forgiveness. And if your pleasure has been at the expense of another, this is not the way God gives pleasure. But we, the church, have a much higher calling, and here's why, because we know the who that is behind the pleasure. Look at verse four. It says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so if God created pleasure, then we, the church, can let that pleasure we experience point us to the God who created it, right? We can thank God for who he is through what he gives. And if he gives pleasure for us to enjoy, 
and we receive it the way that he has designed us to receive it, then we can see him in it. And this type of view can only happen when you have received that gospel and you have that kind of relationship with God that Jesus has provided. And listen, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, let today be the day. If you need that forgiveness, if you need that healing, let today be the day that you say yes to him because he, he is a father who delights and giving good things to his children. And look at what happens next in verse five. It says, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. What is the it being made holy? It is sex and it is food and it is pleasure because pleasure is made holy when it is steeped in, in the word of God and it is steeped in prayer. And what Paul is referring to is these these, these um pieces that would be in the temple, bowls and candlesticks and all that stuff. They were just bowls and candlesticks until they were brought into the temple to be used for worship. And then they were made holy. And that's where we get our word for sanctification, which is a process of us being made holy. And when you take pleasure and you receive it the way God gives it and, and you receive what God gives, you actually make that pleasure holy. You see, your pleasure becomes holy and sex with your spouse becomes a ministry and becomes worship instead of being self-serving. Food to be enjoyed can become as spiritual as communion because you're connecting with the God who made it. And see, when this happens, our boredom turns to worship. And church, Here's what can happen for you if your boredom turns to worship. The world sees a group of people that think like these false teachers did, right? Because when the, the world sees the church, they often think we're a bunch of Puritans in contemporary clothes. But we can show them what pleasure is, is an act of worship. And they can see a church that is happy and they can see a church that is joyful. And they can see a church that loves the God that created them. And y'all, let's be that kind of church. Let's be a church that I know we are because at the end of the first service when I came up and after I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and came up and I said, y'all, I need you to forgive me for doing this. They did. That's the kind of church we are. The kind of church we are is a church, the kind of church we are is a church that knows we are loved by God and can experience pleasure the, the way he gives it and what he gives. We're a kind of church that, that people ask questions about because you know why? They see smiles on our faces. And so receive the pleasure that God gives you. Listen, 40 weeks from now, I would love to have a slew of ladies carrying new babies in this church. Right? Married. Baby, well, babies aren't married, but the couples are married. I would love to see us enjoy what God has given the way he has given it. Let's pray.